only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Good Nicks is an audio project exploring the journey and meaning of doing good in the world for people who do good or are just thinking about it. Good Nicks spotlights 10 people. We dig into who and what inspired them, what keeps them up at night, their sacrifices, their rewards, their failures, and what it means for their relationships. Hear about how Max founded a New Orleans center that is redefining recycling. Hear about Deborah, a social worker and psychotherapist who works with indigenous families in Los Angeles at the Department of Mental Health. Hear about David, the founder of Together We Remember, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering the next generation of leaders to say never again to genocide. And we ask the question, what does it really mean to do good? Goodnix is available wherever you get your podcasts. Follow and subscribe now so you don't miss it. Visit goodnix.org. That's G-O-O-D-N-I-K-S. Goodnix.org to learn more about the Goodnix. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hello, I'm Reza Aslan. And I'm Rain Wilson, and I'm here to remind you that the Earth is dying and we're killing it. Jesus, dude. Sorry. I know, that got dark. God damn, well, fuck it then. I'm, I'm leaving. No, 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 no. There may be something that we can do about it, uh, about the potential destruction of everything we know. Do you want to get into it? Yes, please. Okay, here we go. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Panther. So the changes that humanity needs to make uh, are legion. It's as big as you can possibly imagine. Um, Buying a bunch of cheap crap and just throwing it and having a huge carbon footprint and just building willy-nilly and ripping down trees and killing off species is not going to cut it. Uh, It's going to, if we continue in that behavior, uh, hundreds of millions of people are going to lose their lives. Well, I mean, talk about the most important spiritual and existential issue that we could possibly address. This is it. Yeah. It's the big one. This is the big one. It's the big one. And I just read an article today that was talking about denial, and there's three different kinds of denial. So the number one denial is like, it's not happening, and people don't really go there anymore. That's the the Republicans, right? No. I mean, there's some, yeah. It's a hoax. But that's the second kind of denial is like, Hey, don't overreact. We don't need to change our lifestyle that much. You're just making a mountain out of a molehill. There's always going to be some climate change here and there. It's not going to be that bad. And kind of like a lot of obfuscation Mm -hmm. and talking points that kind of take away from the seriousness of the problems. And that's a second second level of denial. But the third level of denial are well-meaning folks 
like our podcast listeners, like me, which are simply not really looking at it because we don't know what to do and we don't really want to face the fact. That's me. That it is a world crisis. How is that you? That's me. Like, I feel I feel overwhelmed by it. I feel like the the amount of change that's necessary in order to fix the problem uh, requires a kind of political will that I just don't believe is possible. So um, this is what I did. I went up to Greenland, um, and I'm while I'm up there shooting this little thing, I was like, why don't I record a fucking podcast, brah? What was Greenland like? What was it like? It's crazy, man. I mean, I think there's like 35,000 people in the entire country, and the country is like bigger than Texas. Wow. It is huge. There is zero arable land on Greenland. What do, what do people eat then? You, you eat seals. <laughs> they eat, they're walking around with dead seals in plastic bags. I'm not mm. kidding you, in all the towns. Did you, did you eat some seal? I, I couldn't bring myself <laughs> to eat the seal. <laughs> I'm chewy, sorry. I would imagine. Very I chewy. Think very, very chewy. Yeah. It's be like chewing on a raw mollusk. Instead, you just hit the local Taco Bell. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I didn't. Yeah, but <laughs> it's it's crazy. I mean, it's um, it's so desolate. Um, and when that really desolate space becomes super beautiful, uh, it's very still there. Oddly enough, there's like very little wind in Greenland. So the, some of the light, the sunsets, I saw northern lights for the first time in my life. Uh, unbelievable. The people really kind and warm. And um, it's just the edge of the earth. It really is. It's like It's like nothing I've ever seen before. So um, I spoke to David Hick and Gail Whiteman, and uh, they are two wonderful scientists. They're passionate about climate change. They're so knowledgeable, and unlike most kind of nerdy, kind of laboratory-based scientists, these are ones that are really trying to communicate what they know to the outside world and really trying to do something. David Hick is a professor of biological sciences at the University of Alberta. He studies terrestrial ecology and is an expert climate scientist in, in, in Arctic systems. Both of them uh, focus on the Arctic because the Arctic is the bellwether of climate change. Everything that's happening in the world that's going to be happening in the world is going to be felt in the Arctic first. So that's where scientists are turning their attention. Gail Whiteman, Dr. Gail Whiteman, is director of the Pentland Center for Sustainability and Business at Lancaster University in the UK. She's the founder of Arctic Base Camp, uh, which I am a board member of, a nonprofit, uh, which goes to Davos and um, sets up this really cool Arctic base camp unit at Davos. So the billionaires are flying in on their private jets and trying to show them the science of climate change. Um, and uh, she is an expert on global risk. And I sat down with the two of them together in a hotel room in Ilulasat, Greenland, with Icebergs floating around, no kidding, no exaggeration, in the ocean out, outside, and seals swimming around and whales spouting around. And I sat down with the two of them together to talk about how our world and our humanity is changing. And I tried to make the conversation not like your normal, typical climate yeah. change conversation. Oh, right. boo, 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 this is bad. And, you know, but to really get into kind of the life's big question mm. that underlies it, which is humanity has done certain things 
that has led to this point and how do we shift that? How do we shift what humanity is doing on this planet to move forward? It's the ultimate existential question. How did we get here? Where are we going? Hi, podcast listeners. Hello, Metaphysical Milkshake. Hi, Reza. Uh, This podcast is coming to you from room 511 of the Arctic Hotel in Ilulisat, Greenland, north of the Arctic Circle, uh, where I'm sitting with two world-renowned scientists. And just so the listeners know, we have just spent 12 hours out in in Greenland uh, exploring uh, exploring nature. Uh, we took a boat ride 70 kilometers north of Alulasat uh, to, uh, I don't even know what it's called. It has some ridiculous Greenlandic name, but uh, a giant glacier meeting the ocean. And it about a kilometer and a half long. It looked like the wall from Game of Thrones. It really did. Yeah. Was it 300 feet tall, I'm guessing? At least, at least. And uh, the noises it was making, I think, would have fit very well in Game of Thrones as well. It really, truly was some noises that I have never heard before in my life. The sound <laughs> of a glacier cracking calving pieces of it falling off into the ocean kind of groaning of ice and then the constant because we were like in a sea of ice cubes it was just chunks so we did that then we visited a greenlandic village we were on a boat for hours and hours now and it's 9 30 at night so we're a little bit tired a little bit punch drunk but what better time to dig into some of life's biggest possible questions having to do with climate change? Taking a giant step back and looking at humanity on this planet, we've got the dawn of the industrial age. How, do, how did we get to where we are right now? Well, I think we got here because people wanted a better life. So they tried to find ways to make life easier. And certainly at any time in any part of human history, if you find an easier way to conserve energy and get more food in an easier way, people will do it. Every culture has done that. The The problem we have right now, though, is that it was fossil fuels. And a little bit of fossil fuel use was okay. It just has been far too much for too long. And it's really changed, you know, the atmosphere. Well, and, and I think what really made it possible for us to get to this point is that for the last 10,000 years, the climate system's been pretty stable. Normally it bounces all over the place, in and out of glacial periods. And we've been, since the end of the last ice age, in a time when that variability has been reduced. And that allowed societies to establish, and most importantly, perhaps the the development of, of agriculture. And we've gone through several agricultural revolutions, and maybe we can come back to this later, but I think this ability to take nature and tame it in a way that allowed us to have time to develop science, to develop culture, to um, you know, increase our populations has been a, a catalyst for the type of innovation that has got us to this point. And 
I don't know what you think, Gail, but I think we're reaching a point where that innovation is creating more problems than it's solving. Yeah, like I don't think it's innovation on its own. It's just exploitation without understanding the unintended consequences, right? right? So, and then really not looking at them even when they're glaringly obvious. So I think innovation alone is a real strength. It's like that basic curiosity kids have is a good thing. And aren't we going to rely on innovation to take us yeah. out of this in some regard at some point in time? Absolutely. I think we will, but I think that our motivation for doing that can't be singularly economic. It can't be about a small profit for short-term gain, whether that's distributed evenly across, you know, society or a population or not, but it's about why are we why are we innovating and and what what is the benefit of being clever? as a species and being able to apply that knowledge to uh, make the world a better place, make, make ourselves richer. And I think it's funny because Gail, at first you said, and it sounded so reasonable, you were like, oh, we, people want a more comfortable life, you know? And, uh, and then you, and then you talked about exploiting resources. So we wanted a, a more, and, and David, you said we wanted to tame the world. You know, I think, that we, I'm not the scientist, and and I'm I'm asking you to step outside of your s- distinctive specific fields a little bit. But I'm not really a scientist, but I'm not at all a scientist. I'm, in fact, I'm whatever a scientist is. I'm the opposite of whatever that <laughs> thing is. So, um, so, but from my point of view, it's all about that taming and exploitation. This idea that nature was something to be tamed, that nature was something to be exploited as if we had that right. There was something, I don't know, you know, I, I think if Reza was sitting here, he'd probably blame Christianity, <laughs> but uh, there was something taken away from the, the primal indigenous people's beliefs that Mother Earth is sacred and we need to treat her with great respect and we're so busy taming and exploiting and seeking comfort and acting out of greed that some kind of, you know, maybe not climate, some kind of environmental disaster was inevitable. Well, you know, I lived with Indigenous people for two years while I was doing my field research for my PhD. And I think the thing I, the first thing I learned was it was super not romantic. It's really hard and you are looking for ways to make life easier, right? When you're hauling water out of um, frozen lakes just to have drinking water, you are looking for things that could make it easier. So the idea of of convenience is is good. At the same time, there was such a deep appreciation that you were just one part of a web of life, that you were inside it, and that by recognizing that, actually you were able to be more successful. And I think because if you didn't know what was going on, if you couldn't read the tracks of the animals or understand where the ice was or understand um, uh, weather coming in, then you were vulnerable and you were at risk. So the idea of being part of that web of life actually gave you, you know, what business would say is a competitive advantage. Uh, and I think embedding yourself is, is, is you know, a really a deep strength that these cultures have. And I think in, in the last few hundred years, we've lost that attachment to the rest of the world. We don't recognize ourselves as being part of nature, as being part of a food web. And yeah, we're at the top of it sometimes, but when we disassociate ourselves 
from the rest of the natural world and position ourselves as being in control of everything, then we get to a point where we are now where we don't, we've, we've really lost control of the changes that are occurring. And a good, a good first step would be to reestablish that respect for the natural world. And Gail, that was interesting what you said, because you almost said like there's a cost-benefit analysis to recognizing oneself in the web of life, that actually if you uh, have a certain humility about seeing yourself in this complicated web and part of, an, of a much larger, very fragile, interdependent ecosystem, that the payoff is much greater than if you disassociate yourself from it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was something that I really learned, you know, the hard way when I was living in the bush camp. The first day I went up there, I was not paying enough attention to the natural environment and to where I was, and I nearly died because I was completely unable to make sense of fast-moving changes in the ecology, and I was paying attention to the people. So I was socially focused, but not ecologically focused. And then I realized that while I started to pay attention to a lot more and built up my skills in a very routine way, it was both comforting, actually, and you know, you just got better at it and you could get resources and and you could get, you know, your family could survive in a harsh winter of, you know, minus 30 daytime Celsius daytime temperature, minus 50 at night. I mean, that's cold. Milkshakers, is the piece of plastic in your wallet doing enough for you? Because with the secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card, you can start building credit with everyday purchases and on-time payments. You see, with Credit Builder, members can increase their credit history with no annual fees or interest. And having a good credit score can mean getting better car loan rates or renting apartments easier. Or just bragging rights around the dinner table. So, continue your credit journey with Chime. Sign up only takes two minutes. It doesn't affect your credit score. Get started at Chime.com slash milkshake. That's Chime.com slash milkshake. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Stride Bank N.A. pursuant to a license from Visa USA. Chime checking account and $200 qualifying direct deposit required to apply for the secured Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. Regular on-time payment history can have a positive impact on your credit score. Impact to score may vary, and some user scores may not improve. Rain, uh... How many podcasts have we now done about the climate crisis? Like 70? Mm. I don't know. Yeah, maybe like something like that. Have something to yeah. do. I mean, look, we talk about it a lot because we're obsessed with it. It's very important. We have to figure out a way to get people to start caring about the climate crisis, to start changing their uh, actions and their activities, to, to really inspire other people to act. And that's what's so great about REN. REN, folks, is a startup that's making it easy for everyone to make a meaningful difference in the climate crisis. Right now, they're focused on monthly subscriptions where you can calculate your carbon footprint, then offset it by supporting awesome climate projects that plant trees, protect rainforests, and remove CO2 from the sky. Signing up for REN is an easy way to do something meaningful about the climate crisis. REN practices something called hyper-transparency. That means once you sign up to make a monthly contribution to offset your carbon footprint, you'll receive monthly updates about the tree planting or the rainforest protection or the carbon removal projects that you're funding. You can even see the exact coordinates 
of the trees you planted. Unbelievable. I know. Look, it's going to take all of us to end the climate crisis. You can do your part today by signing up for Ren. So go to ren.co slash milkshake. Sign up and they'll plant 10 extra trees in your name. That's W-R-E-N dot C-O slash milkshake. Start making a difference. Thank you, Ren. So you were working with the James Bay Cree uh, for those two years. Did you, what, are there more specific life lessons about ecology that you gleaned from the Cree people and their traditions when you were living and working there? Yeah, I think, you know, the first thing I, I really learned was that you had to really understand the place where you were. And the place was both the ecology, but the people and the spirit world. So there was a dynamic that was going on um, in their belief system where they were actually in conversation with their local ecology, in conversation like we're in conversation. And whether we believe that or I believe that is not what's important is they believe that and there was a successful strategy for them. They lived there for thousands and thousands of years. And the hunter that I was staying with his family, you know, you could drop him into uh, the middle of the subarctic winter with an axe and he could survive that winter. He still had those skills. It was amazing. So in conversation with nature, like talking yeah. to trees and yeah. then also in the conversation with the spirit world and talking to the spirits around them. Yeah. Wow. With us in the Western world in our culture right now, we don't really talk to trees or talk to spirits. Maybe we should be doing more of that. I don't mean to denigrate that at all, but how do we commune with our ecological systems in this day and age? How do we get out of this mentality of subjugating nature, uh, exploiting nature for our own comfort um, without any kind of thought of the future? One example that is really resonating for re me right now in, in the communities I work with, one easy way for us to, or very simple, direct way for us to reattach some meaning to, to the world is to use some of the indigenous names. Hmm. So, for example, there's a big different, uh, big difference between calling something, say, Kluani Lake versus uh, Kluan Mon, Big Fish Lake. And the mountains around uh, have names of animals or animal spirits, or the rivers that flow into those lakes have names that you know have nothing to do with the dead horse that died there a hundred years ago, and you know Slim's River, right? So we need to we need to think about the spiritual attachment of place to the environment, and when we come in as colonizers or we come in. Uh, as tourists, or we come in without that attachment, without paying attention to the attachment that evolves over a long period of time. Um, and it could be indigenous um, First Nations, it could be residents of a place, the local community that have generations of, of, of attachment and stories. Um, those are the things that connect us back. And I think we need to slow down a little bit and pay attention to understanding the landscape around us. It's changed over time. It'll continue to change. But understanding what to call a place and why it's called what it is, mm. is really an, a, an important aspect of, of learning to respect the, the place as oh, well. That's beautiful. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that it's this idea of also attachment, but then also deep daily routine 
knowledge mm. of where you are and the ecology and how that's changing around you. And I think that's important. So I used to teach my MBA students and my business students in an outdoor classroom on sustainability. And I taught it outside because I wanted them for maybe the first time in a long time to pay attention to the natural environment where they were, as opposed to the natural environment was for leisure, was for recreation, was for sports, mm. was for travel on their way to work or school. And I wanted them to think that that's a place of work. And we actually have to pay attention to what the weather is like routinely. People would say, what do we, what do I wear? And I'm like, well, figure out what the weather's going to be like and dress accordingly. So it's not that nature's away somewhere and we can come inside and just be away and talk about sustainability in a denatured place. We have to be in it. And I, and I think that that's really important to try and figure out what are these little changes that over time become huge changes. And, and we can see that. We saw that in, in, in the, one of the villages today, that, that some of the, the local people had been noticing climate change 25 years ago. They didn't know what it meant, but they, they noticed something was different and they tried to figure out what that was and if there was risk and how they could somehow adapt to that risk. And that's where we are now because the rest of us have not really been doing that. It's interesting. It's in speaking to Ole today, the native Greenlander who's from that village of 30 people, used to be 200 people. Um, he was talking about how there's so much more fish re recently, and there's so many more whales recently. It's just the place is chock-a-block with whales. And then he was talking about how he wishes they could hunt the whales the way their ancestors did, because they, they, they have a limit on Greenland can only have like 12 whales per year or something like that, but they've been hunting whales for thousands of years. And one whale could feed the city of Elusitat for like a month, you know, but instead he was talking about, instead we ship in and plane in pork and chicken and beef, cows that were grown and on another continent, and they're not allowed to, to, to harvest their whale. But the, the point that I'm, the larger point I'm trying to make is that climate change is pushing all the little fish north into colder waters. And all the larger fish are chasing all the little fish. So all the fish are migrating seemingly up from the equator up into colder and colder waters. And it's changing the whole ecology. It happens to be really helping their fishing industry. The fishermen are like making money hand over fist up here. But uh, he also recognized like the glaciers are retreating. The great glaciers are shrinking and melting. It's very true. You know, um one of the challenges we face in the future, I think, is erasing some of the lines that we've drop, drawn on the map because the fish don't know where the boundaries are between the economic zones of Greenland and Canada and Iceland or anywhere else. Uh, bears don't know when they've crossed from Canada into the U.S. or from Alaska into the Yukon. Um, and trees and you know other species don't know that they're their limits of their range is here and that they become invasive when they go somewhere else and create all sorts of problems. And we have to, this, this porosity of nature over time is, is part of the whole evolutionary process. It's part of that adaptation process. And one of the challenges I see is we've drawn boundaries, um, uh, political boundaries, economic boundaries, social boundaries that, that don't acknowledge that, that flow of, um, 
of the climate system, of the yeah. ecology of the world across those boundaries. And I think a good starting point would be to recognize that those are things we've imposed and maybe they had a moment when they were appropriate for some reason, but there are barriers now for us being able to look forward and, and change with the rest of the world. Folks, if you recently bought anything, you probably noticed that prices have gone up on almost everything especially on essentials like gas, groceries, and utilities. And that's why it's a great time to use GoodRx to at least save on your prescription costs. How? Well, with GoodRx, you can instantly compare prescription prices at pharmacies in your neighborhood and find discounts that could save you up to 80%, 80% people. GoodRx is free and easy to use, and it works whether you do or do not have insurance. Even if you have insurance, GoodRx may actually beat your copay price. You can check GoodRx online or on their app, which just happens to be one of the most downloaded medical apps. From there, you can find prescription savings at over 70,000 pharmacies nationwide, like CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid, Vons, Walmart, and many more. Then take the money that you've saved with GoodRx and put it towards filling your tank or filling your shopping cart or anything else that has gotten more expensive these days, which is just about everything, right? I have spoken to many people that have personally used GoodRx and they love it. They like to price compare and price shop their medicines just like you would anything else. I mean, why not? Genius idea, right? For simple, smart savings and your prescriptions, check GoodRx. Go to goodrx.com slash milkshake. That is goodrx.com slash milkshake. Goodrx.com slash milkshake. GoodRx is not insurance, but can be used in place of insurance, Medicare, and Medicaid. In 2021, GoodRx users saved 81% on retail prescription prices. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. It contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio, 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams potassium, 60 milligrams magnesium, but with none of the junk. That means no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. So when you sweat, the primary electrolyte lost is sodium, and you can lose up to seven grams per day. When sodium isn't replaced, it's common to experience muscle cramps and fatigue. I've been using these now for the last several months because they sent me a sample. I love it. I have less uh, muscle cramps and fatigue after my epic tennis battles with elements. So I really appreciate what they do. Element is so sure you will love their product and come back for more that they're offering you a free Element sample pack. That's eight single serving packets. I got a bunch of these. It's great. There's like a whole bunch of variety um, and it's all free. All you got to do is cover the cost of shipping, which is yeah about five bucks for U.S. customers. So you can get yours at drinkelement.com slash milkshake. Now that's drink L-M-N-T. See, clever, right? Elementy, element, get it? Drink elementy.com slash milkshake. This deal is not available on their regular website, so you've got to go to drinkelement.com slash milkshake. Element offers a no questions asked refund. Try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a salty friend and they'll give you your money back. No questions asked. 
you got nothing to lose except dehydration. One of the things you said today when we were out on our boat under that glacier, um, which I thought was so interesting, is you were talking about how there's a whole, because you study ecosystems, Hmm. uh, among other things, but there's a whole ecosystem under the ice. So when the sea ice melts, what happens? So talk us through that, because we went through an interesting conversation of like tracing that. And I don't think people, I had never really thought about stuff like that before. Yeah, well, I think I think one of the the changes that's taking place fairly rapidly that, that most people are aware of is the loss of uh, sea ice in the Arctic um, from historically about 8 million square kilometers to about half of that and a sustained loss year after year uh, in the last decade. Um, And not just are we losing the ice in summer, but the ice is getting younger. It doesn't stick around long enough to become old ice. And that old ice develops a really highly productive, unique ecosystem on the bottom surface, you know, that's, that's in the water column. And that serves as sort of a nursery for all sorts of uh, of species that feed on algae, that feed on zooplankton, small fishes that are eaten by big fishes, that are eaten by seals, that are eaten by polar bears. There's this whole system that that sort of relies on 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 that part of the community to 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 uh, sustain it. If you lose that old sea ice and you lose sea ice in general, that that all disappears. And so the nature of the entire Arctic Ocean food web is going to change at the same time. So that's one example. And when you say change, it's going to change for the worst. Because uh, there are going to be animals that are going to miss out and just not have their food and will be seriously hurt or go extinct. There is nowhere else for them to go. That's correct. Right. And they'll be replaced by something else, but we'll have lost something at the same time. And diversity is really the, one of the fundamental pillars of sustainability and, and resilience. But it's interesting that we talk about unity and diversity as a spiritual concept. We talk about the importance of diversity, like in the United States, the you know, the conversation about the importance of diversity and diversity makes us stronger mm. as a, as a race mm. on this planet. I mean, as a, as a race, meaning a species on this planet. Um, but also, uh, seems like that diversity also works in nature, that, uh, nature thrives on diversity. And, and because we're part of nature, we need it too in all forms. And the science is showing really clearly that, Biodiversity is at is far over the safe operating space. It's hugely mm-hmm. at risk. You know, um, one out of eight species are at risk of extinction. Tremendously big. Millions of species are ri- at risk because of what we're doing, and that is just bad news for the, the the planet and also the space in which we operate or thrive as humans, human society. I don't want to forget the doom and gloom. I actually really like looking at the doom and gloom and really looking at it with open eyes and seeing where we are. And I do that not because I want to be unhappy or I'm a masochist, but I want to do it because I want to see where we are and then I want to fix it as much as I can. And here's where the Arctic is so important. This place that seems so remote at the top of the world, home to 4 million people on a planet of, you know, seven and a half billion, is telling us things, uh, if we watch and, and, and observe carefully enough, about how quickly 
the diversity in a system, the structure of a system can change. You can lose huge volumes of ice. We can lose uh, or, or change the, the entire nature of, of plant communities as they grow taller because it's warmer in summer. We can lose entire uh, populations of reindeer because it rains one day in, in December and it forms an ice layer on the ground that they need to access to, to forage through the rest of the winter. Um, so we see massive die-offs of, of reindeer in Svalbard and Norway and other places. These are all things that, these, these either, whether they're singularities or whether they're rapid changes over a period of, say, a decade, we've now observed the systems for long enough to know where they're headed. And they're headed, they're headed in a bad place, Gail. Right. But, but, so we, so, but we can learn from that. We, well, we can. But first of all, we really need to know how bad it is. So first of all, looking at the Arctic, unfun fact number one, we have lost in the last 40 years 50% of Arctic summer sea ice. Mm -hmm. In terms of volume of the same ice, we have lost 75% of that ice. In terms of old ice, so multi-year ice, we have lost 95% of that. So that is a massive alarm bell. And it's not just an alarm bell for the polar bear or for the inland community here in Greenland. It is an alarm bell for the way the rest of us lead our lives. Because the Arctic affects the global climate system. It affects extreme weather in the mid-latitudes. So um, storms, too much heat, drought, wildfires, polar vortex coming in, floods, too much rain, um, changes on agricultural um, crop growing seasons, uh, sea level rise. I mean, it just affects a lot of what we're of, of how we live our life far away from the Arctic, and that that is just one of the big systems that's under um, incredible pressure. Right. So if we want to really look at the doom and gloom, in September at the UN meetings. Uh, in 2019, the UN, uh, what, it, the Club of Rome launched a planetary emergency. So that's the first time that uh, a prestigious organization like the Club of Rome and global scientists actually declared a planetary emergency. It's never been done before. I was one of the contributors. And that really sucks. I have to say it. Mm -hmm. Like to, to spend the summer before that knowing we're declaring a planetary emergency is really hard. Because you're with your own families and you think, wow, doom and gloom, that is not good news. And only by actually looking at it for the reality, I think we can dig ourselves out of it. So the doom and gloom is important from not a let's give up, but from a let's get moving. Let's fix this and let's fix it now. Yeah, the complacency of, of, of our actions so far is just leading us further down this path. Let's take a step back and go, okay, but what is how does humanity need to shift in being this species on this planet? How do we need to think differently as a species that's revolutionary and completely different than what got us to this point uh, in those years, in 2050, in 2100, with these immense changes taking place across the globe? I think we have to become systemic again, and we have to be embedded in the natural system. And then we have to figure out how do we govern in a totally new way. Mm. So right now we're governing, whether it's our families, our communities, our companies, or our nation states, really with from a self-interested, it's us versus them. 
perspective. We cannot do that in a complex system. We will not be able to do that in a future Earth that has any dimension of funness to it. We're either on the catastrophic future Earth, and that's really survival of 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 the fittest side. Mm-hmm. Um, or we're at a future Earth where we've actually learned to be to to govern much more systemically, and that will be a really different way of doing it. Probably technology can massively help us on that because we can figure out what's going on in other places and somehow integrate those data points into it. But technology can help us, but isn't there a fundamental compassion gap there? Mm-hmm. Because you're talking about like <laughs> companies and countries not operating out of self-interest. I mean, that's crazy talk. I mean, look at all of these kind of right-wing people being elected all over the globe that are talking up nationalistic self-interest as they're, you know, people want jobs. They want more money in their pockets. They're feeling overtaxed. They're feeling overburdened. They want to take care of their families. And they're listening to these kind of reactionary demagogues and voting them into office. But you're saying we need to go in a completely different Way isn't the, isn't the problem more spiritual of of like a deep uh, like a deep soul compassion for whomever might be suffering in someplace else on the planet and how do we all batten together and survive as a species? I mean, ultimately, we need to find these solutions ourselves. I don't think there's going to be little green men from outer space that come down and hand us a recipe book on you know how well, to they, save they the planet. They wouldn't be. What if they were little green women? Sorry, little green, little green persons come down. What they will be, there will be, you know, we have to save ourselves. And I think those conversations are taking place. I think they're taking place more visibly. It may not be reflected in the governance structures that we have right now and or the people that are um, running those, 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 those governance structures, but there is a change taking place. There's an awareness that without some change, we're going to be on a very uh, poor path. And, and I, you know, I like what you're saying about compassion. Mm. And I think that when we bring the heart back in to science, to economics, and to government, that's a much more beautiful future place. And I think that that's a place that most of us would like to be in. Almost every day of the week, I go up to my university campus and I, you know, go into a classroom or walk hallways with young people. And you know what? Um, They have a concern and an awareness and a sense of optimism and a curiosity and a drive to try to change the way things are. So maybe maybe it, it takes a change of a generation that can affect the type of actions that will be needed. But at the university right now, I'm very optimistic with the, the students that, that are sitting in my classroom that challenge me on all of these things and are seeking the knowledge and the understanding to make those changes happen. Okay, well... That actually wasn't so bad. Like, it, I think maybe I'll stop digging my little hole. Stop digging your mole hole? Digging my mole hole, yeah. Maybe. It, is, it is really bad. It is, it is really bad. And at the same time, 
there is hope and there is an enormous challenge awaiting humanity, not a country, not the United States, not Finland, not Spain, but there is a challenge awaiting seven and a half billion people on this planet. You feel like like Joe Schmo, American, I'm, I'm living in Topeka, I'm like, well, well, I mean, I guess I could trade in my gas car for an electric car and I might put up some solar panels and maybe I could eat some less meat. But what what good is me? I'm just one person. There's 7 billion people. So this is part of the problem with climate change is because we need 7 billion people to make that same decision. We really need people to, you know, drive electric, to put solar panels on their house, to stop eating meat, to stop consuming so much, to plant more trees and to fight for the health of the environment and politically to fight for policy that stops um, our dependence on on oil and gas and coal, especially coal just needs to be banned outright and we have to fight to ban it. It's it is it's absolutely the worst. I've had a couple of cousins of mine that I've taken to rehab, okay, from drug addiction. So if you're addicted to something You can get out of the addiction earlier and easier, and you're definitely going to suffer negative consequences, or you can total your car and hit someone and lose all your teeth and be bleeding out of your eyes and go into a spasm and lose your left arm because of sepsis, and you can go the hard way. And that's the choice that humanity has. I I just, I I hear you, and I just can't help but think that we're... We've already decided the hard way, the right? Two? No, <laughs> like, no. Addiction is a really good uh, metaphor for this. Thank you. And maybe I've just seen too many movies, but isn't it usually like when you wake up naked in a gutter uh, and <laughs> and you've got nothing <laughs> left? Then you're finally like, you know what? I I ought to do something about some, my life. Some, and some people hit bottom much less than that. Some people just pass out at a party, and their friends tell them, "Hey, you got to do something about your drinking or dr- your drug use," and that's their bottom, and they turn things around. So the question is, and I'm glad to hear you say that this experience made you think that no, maybe there is hope. After all, but have do we have to hit bottom first as a planet? Well, is that when we, the hope happens? We, we are definitely going to hit bottom. It's just how bad of a bottom is it going to be? And I've never said the word bottom so many times in my life. Bottom, 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 bottom. I, I want to hit your bottom. Ooh. <laughs> What do you think, listeners? Do you think it's possible? Do you think that we can make the changes necessary on a global level? Do you think what Rain said is right, that it whether we can do it on the global level or not, it all starts with the individual, that you yourself are going to make a commitment that you're going to make the changes necessary in order to be able to inhabit a livable world. Let us know what you think. Find us on socials at Reza Aslan and at Rain Wilson. Make sure to use the hashtag metaphysical. And if you have some kind of climate manifesto or ideas about climate that you think can change the world, we definitely want to hear about that. We can all do something. We have to do something. We are going to be feeling these effects more and more through the decades. So get busy. And just to be clear, if you have the solution to our climate crisis sitting in a drawer somewhere, probably don't just email us. Yeah. That's my yeah. Two cents. <laughs> Yeah, get get it out there. Get it out there is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Help us out. Uh, Thank you so much to our guests, uh, Dr. David Hick and Dr. Gail Whiteman. 
Keep fighting a good fight, both of you. Love you both. Love you, Greenland. And uh, we'll catch you next week. If there is a next week. Ooh. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Asham Self, and DJ Lubel. Metaphysical Milkshake is produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Associate producers are Jocelyn Gonzalez, Lindsay Cradwell, Sarah Pellegrini, Mary Phillips Sandy, and Shelby Sandlin. Original music by Jeff Tang and Scott Tang. Where in the world is Rain Dietrich Wilson? Lulasat Greenland, Lulasat Greenland. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.